This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Going a little further back in the story to my own background, um, I come from the food tech world. So I've worked in food delivery for a whole bunch of years, dating all the way back to 2013 when it was a very novel concept. And so most recently, I was at a really amazing company called Ritual in the food tech space, but they were pretty unique. So their focus was on the way that people ordered food in an office setting. So while that made them very differentiated, it also unfortunately made them not so COVID proof. Mm -hmm. So my whole adventure and journey to entrepreneurship started with a layoff in April. And so I know I'm far from alone in that, but sometimes, you know, these setbacks have amazing silver linings and that's been the case with me. And so getting, you know, after being laid off, I didn't jump straight to entrepreneurship. I do have to admit, I started job hunting. And I actually had found a really interesting role at Uber that I got and accepted. And so I thought I knew what my next move was. I had a start date and everything. And then because of more COVID craziness, that offer was rescinded at the last minute. And I think the whole experience for me just really created this interesting inflection point in life where first off, my risk tolerance just skyrocketed. I really started to give myself the space to think, maybe now's the time. And I think it also just became a really big journey of reflection in terms of really asking myself what my personal goals were and what I cared about. And so, you know, I, I took the leap of faith to pursue that. <laughs> Isn't that crazy though? Like, I know we talked about this already when we first met, um, but it's crazy how that risk tolerance changes when your back is against the wall and you have really nothing to lose. It's, it's kind of a weird psychological thing. Like it can apply either way, but for some reason it's a bit more material when you're like, you know what, screw it. I mean, at this point, right. Might as well do what I actually love to do, try it out. And if it doesn't work, I, I always go back to the, to the corporate side. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think the biggest enemy of entrepreneurship, to be honest with you is comfort. Yeah. And so I think when you have a great job and you're comfortable, it's really hard to just wake up one day and say, I'm going to walk away from all of this and I'm going to do something crazy. But just like you said, you know, when you're in a very uncomfortable position, right? When all of that has been ripped away from you, it actually interestingly becomes the perfect time. So yeah, I mean, I'm thankful. It's kind of the same, right? Because it's uncomfortable. Your level of comfort is, is kind of relative to that point. But if you're, you know, if, if it's a comfy job, there's more security. I think that's what always makes it harder. You know, it's, yeah. it, I think like as humans too, you just want to, you want, everybody wants comfort. It's, it's, nobody just wakes up and they're like, oh, I'm going to go for a marathon in like a, you know, minus 20 degree <laughs> weather. It's just like, nobody would want to do that. Like you, you'd have to really push yourself to get out there out of the, the comfort of your condo watching Netflix, right? Yeah, you're exactly right. You have to push yourself or somebody else has to push you. <laughs> right. And so how, how did that whole thing happen? So, you know, obviously you're and for people in, in Canada, you'll uh, resonate with, with ritual shout out. Uh, but so, so you were there always in the food scene, uh, so, sorry, always, well, uh, in, in the food scene, even in terms of Uber, right? Like that, I think that's where you were going to go with it. Right. It was that yeah, Uber exactly Eats. right. It was going to be Uber Eats. And so I was going to stay on the path, the food, the food path. All right. So interesting that you were on that side when, when you're like, you know what, I'm just going to take a step back, think about what I love and maybe start an idea or working an idea. What was the pivot from food scene to the fitness scene? Yeah. So on a personal level, I am a total self-identified fitness junkie. And so alongside this whole food tech career that I was building, you know, my personal escape was group fitness. And so I was really the person who was maxing out class pass accounts, studio hopping all over Chicago. You could find me in some sort of group fitness class like five days a week. 
what was your, was it like Orange Theory or like Zumba class? Like what was your? I like to keep a mix, honestly, but definitely more of a hit person. Um, okay. So I was working out at like Crosstown Fitness, for example, in Chicago, Sweat, to give a couple of examples. So I really liked the boot camp format, but I like to balance that out from time to time with a little yoga. Sometimes it's just nice to, you know, be mindful and, and you know, do some lighter movement. <laughs> yeah, and just not, not be as aggressive. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Very cool. So that, that, that was your, so I guess it came from like a personal love for, for the fitness side and you were always, I mean, this is kind of what's cool about entrepreneurship is like you, you figured out something you're already in, you're already doing. And you're like, you know what, if this resonates with me, let me try to develop something. Usually that comes with a pain point. So was there a pain point for you in that industry? Yeah. You know, what ultimately happened was, you know, I, I think the word community gets thrown around a lot in fitness, especially in like the boutique group fitness climate. And so I really feel like, you know, prior to all of this, I was part of a community, right? I had built friendships with my favorite fitness instructors. It was a very social activity. And so I feel like I had a lot of people in my life who I cared deeply about who were working as, you know, fitness professionals instructing group fitness. And so that was ultimately the tie and it was actually their pain that, that drew me to this and like really thinking about it in the practical terms of some of my close friends who worked in that space. And so ultimately what happened was around the same time that I had gotten laid off, a lot of studios and gyms were closing their doors completely. And so there was a surge of fitness instructors being furloughed and laid off very unexpectedly. And so I was kind of watching from the sidelines, you know, on social media and catching up with friends as all of them went through this. And what really struck me was just the resilience. I was so amazed with how quickly so many instructors decided, you know what, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I have an audience of people who love me. I'm just going to start teaching classes on Zoom or I'm going to pop up in a local park. And so there was a lot of that going on, but largely it was happening over Instagram and Venmo. Like there was no technology experience that made this easy for anybody involved. And that was really the opportunity that we saw was, you know, this is amazing. There's a surge of entrepreneurship happening in fitness. And historically, unfortunately, there is a bit of an earning potential problem in that industry. So a group fitness instructor is teaching, you know, a packed house with 30 people in the room. And unfortunately, they're frequently walking away with on average about $26 per class. Mm. And so the thing that excited me was this idea of, you know, fitness has just been democratized. And so many of the instructors I love are going to start building an independent business and I want to help with the skill set that I have, which is, you know, technology and marketing. Mm. So the focus, and that makes a lot of sense, especially with what's happening now. Uh, and it, it's kind of, it's tough, even with the economics that you pointed out. And that was probably like pre-COVID. And now, you know, where everything has to be virtual, it's even like, it's still possible, but it's more difficult to, to create that community, right? Like that, yeah. that real engagement, like everybody talks about engagement, you know, we're engaging now on a podcast, but it's different than, you know, like a client to client relationship. When, yeah. especially around fitness and like the motivation aspect, you know, unless you have proper tech or there's something towards that, like that can also fall off. So I feel like this was, you know, really, really good timing too. Right. Yeah. You know, the timing was great and, and the timing actually played a really interesting component in how we thought about launching the business because, you know, when you have a black swan event, a black swan event like COVID and, and you see these types of opportunities, like we're chasing with IndieFit, we knew we had a tailwind, but we also knew that it meant we had to move crazy fast. And so 
you know, as we moved from, I have an idea to we're actually going to chase this thing. We knew we had to do that in a very short period of time, which led us to, you know, using a lot of no code technology solutions and being super scrappy. And ultimately we were able to get our product live in market in under four weeks. And so timing was everything. And it's actually been a huge asset since that point. Yeah. I love, I actually love that part too, because that like that's always the 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 more challenging part like i mean it's it's easy to come up with an idea and just be like all right cool like this is the exciting part right kind of like the honeymoon phase and then all the hard part uh, or the hard work comes right after it and, and so i think you just dropped like a gem in terms of saying you kind of got creative right you're like listen we don't yeah. have that much time because this we kind of have to ride the wave with what we're trying to do and so you also pointed out the no code platform if you don't have a lot of infrastructure you know internally with the co-founders or a lot of resources and money you're going to have to figure it out. And that's kind of, you know, part of being an entrepreneur. Uh, an entrepreneur. So Yeah, it, it absolutely yeah. was. So and, and talk to me just quickly about kind of like the resonance so far, like how have fitness trainers uh, received this on the market, obviously coming from a marketing background, how has that played a role with like influencer marketing? What have you been doing to, to be creative on that side? Yeah, you know, we work with about 60 fitness instructors now. So I think we're at a really cool part in our journey where, you know, there's really a a base of partners and a a data set now that's big enough that we're really starting to learn some things in a pretty Mm -hmm. material way. And so, you know, I think overall, we've been thrilled with the reaction. But I think one thing that really sticks out to me is we went in thinking that we were selling technology. And I think what I've learned is that we're selling partnership. And so when we talk to our partners and we ask for feedback, what do they like? What do they not like? One thing we always hear is it's the human component of the business that actually means the most to them. And so, you know, it's like in my own entrepreneurial journey, it's not always easy. And I think I've experienced that as well. Entrepreneurship can be scary. It can be lonely. And what's cool about our business is our customers are also entrepreneurs of their own and largely at a similar, you know, part of the life cycle of their business as we are. And so simply having, you know, a partner in that journey who's making it easier for you and cheering you on and sharing best practices, I think is ultimately like what IndieFit stands for to our partners. Mm. Um, and, and also from a technology perspective, you know, obviously the tech tools, they matter, right? Like they, they take a lot of pain away for fitness instructors, but it's also that what I often call a managed service component. That is what people really love about us. And to give some examples of that, you know, if you're a fitness instructor, you're probably busy and running around and largely managing your day from a phone, not a computer. Right. And so if you're using other booking tools, you have to be your own customer service when a customer or a client rather reaches out in the middle of the day and says, Hey, about that class I booked on Thursday, I actually need a refund. Can't make it. I want to move to Tuesday, et cetera. They basically have to be their own, everything, their own customer service, their own graphic design, the front lines of their entire business. And they have to do it while they're on the run from a phone. And so us being able to take off something as simple as customer service and managing refunds and scheduling, it's these little tiny details that we find are actually what our partners are most excited about. Yeah, so true. I mean, like more of the back office, right? Instead of yeah. instead of like all the heavy lifting that they have to do, which is true. Also, the fact that they have to do it from a phone. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> I think, um, you know, the, the friend I, I, I connected you through uh, LinkedIn um, you know, he, he's, he's one of the, the, the few friends I know who are close enough, you know, in, in the fitness industry, let's say as a, as a personal, you know, fitness instructor and like, this is his full-time business. 
um, he, we were working at, at one point in the, in the same co-working spot, kind of like a we, it's spaces out of Toronto. And literally, he would always be on the move with his phone. Always. And that's the one thing I noticed, which, which seems like intuitive. But for most people, you know, they operate their phone through like social or, you know, they, they, they use it as a phone or what, like all the intuitive stuff, music. But like running a full business just on a phone is actually harder than it, than it might sound to, to a lot of folks who haven't done it in the past. Uh, yeah. So really cool. How did you get that like that consensus though early on? I mean, I know you were kind of close to the industry, but just curious, like how did you collect? Because that's that's one of the things that early entrepreneurs need to do, right? Uh, in terms of their MVP, and you did it really quickly because you've launched only yeah. months ago. So how did you do that in a scalable way? Yeah, you know, it's funny that you use the word scalable because I we actually intentionally did it in an unscalable way, as counterintuitive as that sounds, because I, I think in the early days of a company, just doing the things that you know you won't be doing them three years from now, right? Because they won't scale and they won't hold up when you're working with 10,000 partners. But doing those things in the early days has a lot of merit. And I, I think what we've been very self-aware of is you know, our technology will get better and better with time, but you have to start somewhere, right? We're on an MVP product. It breaks. It has shortcomings. We're self-aware of that. Right. But what we can really stand behind is us and the level of partnership that we deliver. And so, you know, we've, we've gotten that feedback loop to your point by just being so hands-on. The way that we actually invite instructors onto our platform right now is via direct sales. And so largely they're building their business on social media, and so we'll find, you know, partners who look like a great fit for IndieFit. We'll send them a direct message. We'll get on the phone and we'll basically hold their hand through this entire process and, and really throughout that process, try to authentically get to know them. And that doesn't stop once they list their first class. I think that's the important part is maintaining that cadence of relationship building and really knowing your customers. And of course, you know, those things are going to be really hard to achieve at a more mature stage of our company. But I think when you're a young company, that's how you gain the market insights. That's how you really know your customer is by talking to them and just building in the right inflection points in your business that naturally present, you know, a logical time to, to connect and learn from them. Um, so we've been very hands-on. We're definitely going to spend 2021 thinking a little bit more about scaling this, right? Like we can't do direct sales forever. We're probably going to have to start looking at, you know, paid digital marketing and, and more broad reaching tactics. But I feel really glad that we started in a place that connected us that closely to our customers. Yeah, that's actually a really, really good. I mean, a really good point and an interesting one, very opposite of what I was, uh, you know, trying to allude to, which is actually good. It's helpful, right? I mean, I, I didn't expect it to, to be that, that kind of route, but you're right, right? Like you're right in the sense of, you know, when, when you're starting out with 60, in your, in your sense, you know, clients or users or whichever way you want to look at it, uh, very interesting to go through the direct approach, right? Uh, a lot of handholding early on. And I think actually, if you do that, you're going to have fans more than just a user, like someone who really vouches for you, you know, right. goes above and beyond, makes the intros, connects you to other folks like, like themselves. And, and I guess that, that really takes off. Uh, it's kind of like a weird network effect that you're doing, even though it's not your quote unquote scalable approach. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. always kind of thought about it as like, there's a couple different playbooks. There's zero to 100 and we're still in that, right? We're at 60 right now. So there's the zero to 100 playbook. Then there's the 100 to 1000 playbook. And we're absolutely thinking about what that looks like, but I think we're just a little early, um, you know, to be optimizing for the scalability right now. How do you stay ground? Like in terms of doing that, I remember when, when we were creating our, the, the our, our app, which was around books, 
the the hard the hardest part for me as a non-tech founder is always like this exactly what you're talking about like thinking of a, a thousand users but yet we're at like 10 you know what i mean it's yeah. always like <laughs> dreaming of like where this where this could be or where this should be but like being our calm down towards like we still have to do xyz so how do you personally how do you balance that yeah, you know what? It's not easy. And it's as a leader, it's funny that you bring this question up this week because it's something I've been thinking a lot about this week because, you know, I recognize that it is part of my job to set direction for the team, right? And I think we've gone through several weeks where certain weeks in our life cycle were the time to look at what we had learned and change some things. And so you kind of go back to the drawing board, reimagine your business and being on a zoom call and brainstorming and thinking about all the other things you could do is a really healthy exercise. But there's other times that you have to say, you know what, we formed the hypothesis. We got in a room and we brainstormed and we know what we think we need to do. We have to go do it. And you have to be really disciplined about actually, you know, creating the time and space to do that and, and properly getting things into market and getting feedback before you just imagine what's going to happen. And so I find that as an early stage company, it's very interesting because you kind of have to do both of those things simultaneously. You have to be super disciplined about execution and set that direction and hold each other accountable as a team. I mean, this goes for my team holding me accountable as well. But you also have to create the space to learn and pivot because very few companies remain what they think they are on day one, on day 500. <laughs> and so we're trying to create that space, um, you know, simultaneously. And, and it's not easy. And I probably haven't found the perfect formula. But I think, you know, being aware and setting an intention around that is step one. Yeah, no, it's, it's very true, right? Like, it's good to brainstorm. That's basically what I took away from it. Good to have those conversations. But also, when you come out of the other conversation in terms of what we have to do now, right, just setting those like focus points and, and holding each other account, especially when you're when you're an early team of like, let's say, four to 10 people, right? It's easier to hold each other accountable. You know? Yeah, and you can always point back, right? Like, let's, we had this conversation. These are the three milestones. We're not going to talk about anything outside of that just for now, at least. Right. And, and out of the brainstorming comes the exciting future vision to our point before, yeah. you know, it's really healthy to sit in a room and think about, oh my gosh, imagine this thing we could put on our product roadmap two years ago because it drives excitement and it creates a North star and it's always good to know where you're headed. Mm -hmm. But if you just spend all of your time sitting around and feeling exciting about those things, you never get to that point because you didn't do the work. <laughs> and so um, it's, it's a journey. It's a process for sure, but it's been fun. Yeah. And I'm, I'm assuming as part of this process too, curious, just, I mean, as, as maybe talking about the process of leadership, uh, one of the things that I think could be a bit difficult for you, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it was easier, but uh, navigating this all virtually, right? For the most part, I don't know if you're meeting in person or doing walking meetings, but how has that part been for you doing all this? Virtually? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and actually, George, I think when we get into that, I, I probably need to share the story of how our team met, which I know you're aware of because yeah, it adds <laughs> a, a level of complexity here. So, you know, I've been saying we a lot. I have an amazing team behind AnyFit, but we actually met under the most untraditional of circumstances. And the way that everything came about was I had started to think about the business, as mentioned. I'm, you know, watching my friends in the space getting really excited, but I knew I needed a team. And building a team in a pandemic, it turns out, is actually an incredible time to do it because there are so many talented people who were in a similar inflection point in their own lives to the one that I was in. They were open-minded to new possibilities and perhaps possibilities that carry 
a little more risk than, than what they would normally go for. And so I found myself in a really cool fellowship program back in May. It was called Chrysalis and it was run by Clio Capital, which is a really awesome small VC out of San Francisco run by Sarah Kunst. And I went into this program with low expectations and an open mind. It was designed to basically connect people who had been laid off due to COVID who were thinking about starting companies and really help them to think about how to generate ideas, validate those ideas, and then getting into the more tactical things. Like how do you actually incorporate a company and build a team? And so I went in with a total open mind and, and knew roughly what I wanted to work on. And I found two people in particular in this program who just absolutely stood out to me, who are today my co-founders, Scott and Adam. And they both had a really unique tie to fitness of their own. Adam is actually a former pro athlete. And so he played hockey in Toronto. And Scott was a very competitive distance runner. And for all three of us, fitness was a big part of our lives. We were looking at the space and we connected through this program completely over Zoom from coast to coast. So Adam was in LA. I'm here in Chicago and Scott was in New York and we ultimately, you know, found mutual excitement for the business. And it it went from getting to know each other to realizing like all three of us are really serious about this and we want to move forward. And so we did just that, but it's a totally crazy story because when we found ourselves in June ready to incorporate and launch, you know, finding a co-founder is a little bit like getting married. And in my case, you know, we started dating and got engaged and got <laughs> married in like 30 days, right? It was, and so it was a crazy process. And, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the way that this played out because first off, they're incredible. But, you know, I think there was a really interesting dynamic that came from starting a company with strangers in the sense that there's nothing personally to be blinded by. Like there's no history, there's no like you know, emotion that clouds That's being true. able to just really see somebody for like their strengths and their weaknesses and, and who they are as a professional. Right. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been interesting to get like your original question was, what is this like over Zoom? And, you know, not only was it interesting to get to know each other over Zoom, but we've had to continue to do that and run our company <laughs> entirely remote. And the best advice I have on that is you have to be intentional about making sure that you have that virtual FaceTime every mm-hmm. single day. Because when somebody is out of sight, out of mind, somewhere else geographically, and you're not interacting with them, it can just be really easy to miss when they're having a hard day, right? And you're not there to give them the support that they need because you just don't know what state of mind they woke up in. And also sometimes you miss those moments of inspiration where maybe I'm sitting in my office in Chicago and I'm feeling really fired up about an idea and I have to get it out. You got to pull them on the line and just have that conversation when it needs to take place. Um, So I think, I think we've come up with a good system, but it's certainly been an untraditional path. Yeah. It's a crazy story, but it's such a cool one to be honest. Like I think the, 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 that's why I wanted to have this podcast. Part of it was this part of it was coming out of COVID you know, and creating something, but creating it with strangers. Like that's probably the best title I'm going to have to a podcast within like a hundred episodes that I've done so far. Uh, I love it. <laughs> it's pretty dope, man. Really. It's really cool. And it's also, honestly, it takes courage on your part to like, and I guess on their part as well, obviously as co-founders, but it takes courage just to take that leap of faith. You explained it well in the sense that like, listen, there's no emotion, right? And in, even in the worst case scenario, this doesn't work out. At least we're not like best friends or something where then you also ruin a friendship on top of a business, you know? Right. Uh, so right. That, that's an interesting angle because usually you don't hear that. Like I hear the opposite 
and here like you know we we've known each other for like 20 years and you know it was just time for us to create a business or we've created like six startups together it's always one of those and and usually i, I yeah. haven't yet heard sorry, i haven't yet heard the uh, the stranger side of it so yeah i mean i you know from the seat that i'm in i'm an advocate for starting a company with strangers as much as that sounds crazy but i think there's a big caveat on that which is you have to ask the right questions right yeah. like you yeah. have to get to know them and in our case we had to figure out how to do you know several months of getting to know each other in just a few weeks and so there's actually a really interesting resource that somebody shared with me when i was thinking about this and anyone could probably google it and find it really easily but First mm -hmm. Round Capital has this really awesome white paper, which is 50 questions to ask a co-founder. And I mean, it's 50, right? It's a huge list. Mm -hmm. And there were so many things on that list that sparked such insightful conversations amongst my co-founders and I. And just to give a couple of examples, you know, I think it's important to hit things early on, like, you know, what is your ideal role in this company now, mm -hmm. tomorrow, and a year from now? Like, what is your stance on how we capitalize this company like are you pro vc are you pro bootstrapping like these are really important conversations to have and so i think the way that we were able to achieve a surprising amount of you know co-founder compatibility in a short period of time was by embracing hard and direct conversations and really putting ourselves through a super significant pop quiz about every hypothetical scenario and just but, talking it out you know and, and now i know how they feel about those things going forward yeah, it's almost like the 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 base of it, right? Like the the you're you're getting basically to the values. Like, let's skip all the fluff just for a second. Let's get to the core of this. Let's make sure we agree on a couple of things. Obviously, for those listening, having your formalities in place, right? Like everything documented and whatever. I think that's that's a given. But uh, that that's really cool. I'm gonna check that out. Actually, I don't I don't think I've ever come across that. So, and if I I think I'm gonna share it on LinkedIn. Just but by, by the way, you're describing it. I'm gonna tag you as well. And I think we'll use that yeah. as a post for this podcast. So that, it's that's it's a great cool. resource. I would share for sure. Uh, and speaking of resources, uh, you know, you're a first time founder in Chicago. Curious how, how your network has, has been or like the community, you know, in terms of just helping, helping you in, in, in different ways. Because I think for a lot of other people listening, and you pointed this out too, the loneliness aspect, right? Yeah. Uh, like it could be lonely. It's, it's tough to, to go to certain people for certain help. Some, some of the help, quote unquote, is expensive, maybe like legal or, or raising capital. You don't know which option to go with. How has that been for you and, and who have you leaned on? I mean, you don't have to say, yeah. but, but stakeholders, let's say. Yeah. You know, companies are one of those things. It, they're like kids. It takes a village. <laughs> and I truly don't think we would be where we are right now as a company. And I don't think I would be where I am right now from a you know positive mental health perspective if I didn't have that network around me. And, you know, it's come from all sorts of places. I'm very fortunate because I did have a lot of really amazing tech startup experience for about eight years pre-IndieFit. And so, you know, everything ranging from just the support of amazing coworkers who I used to work with, all the way up to, you know, CEOs of former companies that I work for who are so well equipped to give incredible advice on what we're doing, making time for me, which is something I appreciate so much. Um, I'll give Ray a shout out at Ritual, for example. I know he has no shortage of things to be thinking about right now while pivoting, you know, a huge company, but he's made time and I appreciate that. And, you know, I think beyond that, it's been, you know, I, I kind of see like the three silos, which is like, you know, your past network of coworkers and like engaging them in your new journey. Mm -hmm. The next is like proper programs for this. And so we've plugged into some, you know, formal resources like 1871 here in Chicago that just come with 
so much built-in support from people who genuinely care about founders and companies. And you just can't put a price tag on that stuff. I don't know where I'd be without 1871. And the other thing that we did was an accelerator program called Capital Innovators. Mm -hmm. And they're out of St. Louis. That came within another incredible network. But finally, and I think most importantly, is like spend time with other founders. Like there's something that's so novel about this experience that there are certain things that I just don't think can ever be authentically understood until you do it. <laughs> and I've learned that myself, you know, this year and reflecting on like past conversations with, you know, friends I have that have done this. I look back and remember things that they said to me and I just go, wow, I, I didn't quite understand that, but now I sure do. Mm. Um, so definitely shout out to, to all my founder friends. They're incredible. <laughs> no, for sure. That, that's, that's a really, really good way to put it. Right. Like, formal resources like 1871 i just joined as a mentor by the way just speaking of oh, I'm, I'm super excited great. About that. um yeah great accelerator for for those who don't know what that is um it's for and for canadians it's for people in toronto it's like dmz but in chicago uh and then yeah like the speaking to founders is you like that's why there's so many peer groups right i mean just talking to someone who isn't like a service provider you know what i mean not not to hate on on service providers but i'm just saying like <laughs> you know a peer group in the sense of like just talking about the good stuff, the bad stuff, you know, the roller coaster. Oh, shit, like, this is how you handled it. You know what? I'm going through something exactly the same right now. Like, maybe think about this, right? Like, it's just these, these kinds of things that you can bounce off of each other. I think that nobody else would understand other than the ones who are actually in, in the field. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think you have to, like, build your army of a founder network. You need a combination of people who are exactly where you are. Because there's just a level okay. of camaraderie that comes from, like, we are truly going through the same thing right now. But then you need people who are a little slightly far ahead of you, right? Because the things that you're going through right now are still fresh in their mind. And they're like the single best people who can give you advice because they truly remember exactly where it's you are. Place, right? Yeah, yeah. And then go like a little further still, right? Like go find your, you know, series A, series B, series C founder who, you know, may not remember their first year of operation as clearly, but they can give you great advice in terms of how you make your plan going forward for sure for sure um i got one more for you i know we're gonna wrap this up soon but curious and, and i uh, i really love to ask this because um I'm, I'm trying to get so if you look at like the the audience split of my podcast i think it's like maybe 60 40 right now um so i'm trying to get more um you know women to share or i mean women to share their advice for aspiring female founders i think that's super important right trying to resonate with with not only your journey, but, but like what lessons you'd have specifically for uh, aspiring women founders within my community who are listening to you right now on this podcast? Oh, I love that question. I'm so glad you're asking. My pleasure. Mm, I want to I be thoughtful about the response because this is an important question. Yeah. You know, I think I, this, this was near and dear to my heart you know, pre-entrepreneurship, right? Like I, I think there are just going to be certain challenges that women face in any professional environment and they're slightly different, you know, in, in employment where I came from than they are as a founder. But, you know, I, I think that there's certain things we're unfortunately just a little more prone to struggle with. And, and some of those things I think are like imposter syndrome mm -hmm. is, is often the, the term I put on it where, you know, you're going through a growth spurt, you're achieving things you've never done before. You're taking investor meetings that intimidate you, like you're speaking publicly a lot. There's just all these things that come with becoming, you know, a founder and CEO that I have struggled and I'll admit it with this little voice in the back of my head. That's like, 
you're not qualified to do this. Like, like the, the, the gig's going to be up, like someone's going to find you out at any moment. And you really just got to tell that voice to shut up, to be honest. Like, I, I feel like every step of the way in the last six months of building IndieFit, I've felt that personal growth. I've pushed through the, you know, uncomfortability, uncomfortability, and I feel myself growing. And I think you just have to commit to doing that instead of letting any of the things you might hear scare you, right? There's a lot of statistics out there around the very small percentage of VC dollars that go to women or, you know, success metrics and things like that. I just say, don't worry about them. Like you can do it. Absolutely do it. Push through. And there's so many women out there who want to support other women. I'm absolutely one of them. And so I think if you, you know, build that tribe and create a great cadence around getting advice, you know, from women who have done it and, and being in a network that understands those challenges, we're, we're breaking the ceiling. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And it's kind of cool. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of legwork to, uh, to improve on. But I think when I first moved to Chicago, I, I saw a stat that you, Chicago has the highest percentage of female startups, right? Or female let's yeah i've i've heard the same i was delighted when i read that and yeah. happy to be part of it <laughs> like 25 percent or something I, I don't remember the stat specifically but no it's really true and also i think the last point and i, I forgot who i asked this i asked the same question uh, as well and the, the the guest was basically sharing that it's also just indirectly having xenia that's who uh recent podcast as well she's out of romania a really cool founder as well on the marketing agency side but she's just saying like even if i'm not a direct like let's say mentor just indirectly when you see someone who that you can resonate with, right? And that could be different. It doesn't have to be gender. I mean, it could be like ethnicity, let's say, or someone in a similar upbringing fashion or whatever the case is. Then you have a visual in your mind subconsciously that just kind of tells you, you know what, this is, actually is possible. So that when you have the voice in your head, and by the way, I have it too. I think imposter syndrome is something a lot of people, I'm assuming, have to deal with, but they just don't speak about it. Um, then you can quiet that voice down, right? Because now, you know, if yeah. I'm a up and coming startup founder, I see Cheryl doing her thing. Then I'm like, oh shit, like this is, this is possible, right? Like, I mean, she's right. doing, I can see it. You know, I'm also in Chicago. Why, why can't I do that? Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think there's also a unique set of challenges that come, you know, not, not everybody has to go raise outside capital. Like, I think that's something very important to know. You can build a huge business by mm-hmm. bootstrapping and like, it is not a requirement to go get in front of VCs and pitch we're taking the VC path. And so that's something I'm doing right now. But you know, there's a unique set of challenges that specifically come with pitching. And there's some great studies out there on this. And I believe it's Harvard that led the main study on this, but they basically did a study that found that investors are generally giving men more of what are called promotional questions. Like they will Mm -hmm. present a question to you in a way that opens the floor for you to self-promote. And so they might say something like, how big can this be, you know? And that opens the floor for you to say, this can be a huge business and tell you why. Whereas women, unfortunately, tend to get offered up more questions that put you on the defense. And so you're more likely to get a question like, how are you going to build defensibility against this competitor? Or how are you going to hedge the risk that, you know, you have a unit economic issue or whatever it may be? And I, I luckily, you know, learned a lot about that study and like heard an amazing fireside on that topic pretty early. It was a very valuable thing for me to just think about as I went into my fundraising journey, because I do think I've experienced it, if I'm being honest, but I feel prepared to look for it and I now know how to handle it. And so I think it's just a lot of that, like really understanding where am I likely to face unique challenges as a woman and 
think about them ahead of time and just have a game plan. And there's always a way around if you know where to spot the, the challenges. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.